Today's episode is brought to you by Tucrium Trading. To learn more, visit our site at tucrium.com. That's tucrium, T-E-U-C-R-I-U-M.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. All credit to Sal. We said this after we hung up. I think he's the only person on the show, in the history of the show, to come on and say that the product that he is, or the market that he's in, has no real long-term expected return. So agricultural commodities, which is the bulk of the discussion that we had today, they're more like a like a buy-in wait, a buy-in rent, but they're not necessarily buy-in hold forever. Well, a lot of commodities are tactical. Like there's times where you have these huge booms and these huge busts, but like over the course of the product, they don't really go anywhere. So yeah, it's like a lot, it's a trading vehicle. And, and yeah, you're right. Credit to him for actually putting it that way so people understand it better. So Ben, we w- you had an interesting comment today that commodities have a good branding uh, message. Yes. They're the only market where you talk about super cycles. Every time commodities are up like 10%, someone comes on CNBC or Bloomberg and goes, we are setting up for a super cycle or Goldman Sachs commodities analyst says, super cycle is coming. Like no one just says it's a cycle. It's got to be a super cycle. If you said that, if you said that for stocks, you would get laughed at. Yes, if you said a super cycle for stocks, people would say, "Oh, Dow thirty six thousand all over again." And but yeah, commodities have a good. They have a good PR firm, I guess, because the super cycle thing. You have junior gold miners. You know, if I put my Jerry Seinfeld voice on, like, never what's mind. the I deal? Not, yeah, <laughs> what is the deal with that? So yeah, no. It's, but I love the way Sal put this is because every time the prices start to go up, you get these crazy price targets that are way way higher. And when they start to go down, you get these crazy price targets that are way, way lower. And his point was, listen, high prices cure high prices, low prices cure low prices. And it, the human nature impact of that, like your brain can't possibly think that way. It's like, no, no, they're going to keep going up. They're going to keep going down. There's, there's no middle ground. The way that he explains the cycles of commodities, I find really interesting. And, and you add the technology element to it and things getting, to your point, like there's no way food on a real basis costs less than it did back in the 20s or 30s, or whatever, but it does which is like a testament to human ingenuity. That Matthews guy was full of shit. He sure was. I, I'm giving him a pass because he, you know, he he didn't see what was coming. You know, I'm I'm willing to let it slide, even though people have people have still thought that that's what was going to happen. There's going to be billions of people. And we're not going to be able to feed them all. And Sal's point was, we either have just enough food or we have way too much food. There, we don't have a shortage of food on this planet. I watched a movie over the weekend for the 14th time. That's way out into the future when mankind, the planet can no longer handle us. A little movie called Prometheus. It's a good one. Great one. Better than I remember. Is that why they went to space? Because we couldn't... I'm I'm guessing. Actually, actually, the truth be told, Alien Covenant, the sequel, that's the one where they try to colonize other planets, but... Okay. Great. Another great talk with Sal. He always... He's like a, because there, there are people in commodity. I think commodities are so extreme and volatile that you tend to get a lot of volatile people in this space. He's right down the middle. He's very even keel, and that's what I like about him. So here's our talk with Sal Gilberte from Tucrium about the agricultural commodities, oil, all these kind of things. 
We're joined today by Sal Gilberti. Sal is the CEO, the president, the CIO, and founder of Tuclium. Sal, welcome back to the show. Pleasure to be here, Michael. It's only fitting that we have you back on post-Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving, which Ben thinks is an overrated holiday, which is nonsensical? <laughs> how How is your Thanksgiving, and, and what do you think about Ben's, Ben's stance on the I greatest think it holiday is ever? Fair. Thanksgiving is the greatest secular holiday ever. Yes, it is. See? I, ben? I, I said it's, it's three or four down the list for me. That's all. Doesn't mean Food, it's bad. family, fun. It just—it's wonderful, and you get to overeat, and no one cares. Sal, I have to watch the Lions lose every year on Thanksgiving. Okay, well, if when you throw sports in, it changes. I'm just getting it for the food and the fun and the family. Thanksgiving has all the commodities and all the fun. Hey, Sal, I wanted to ask you. Which, forgive me if we asked you this before, but where does the name two cream come from? Two cream comes from an herb. My my family's a, a big herb growers, and I thought it was a cool name, two cream trading. It's it's really. Um, we tell people it's it's lore is from uh, the Greek and Greek god Tusser and all that, but really it, it sounded cool. And it's a useless herb. It's decorative. It grows wild on the hillsides of the Mediterranean. You don't use it for anything. All right. There we go. Uh, all right. So let's let's start broad and then we'll drill down a little bit. Uh, it's Monday, November 27th, 2023. How would you describe the state of the agricultural commodity world presently? Stable well-supplied and headed back towards normalcy, which is uh, cost of production. And that's for the big grains. Now, you know, the couple of outliers, sugar, rice, there, there's some shortages there because of weather and, and really high prices. You've got 12-year highs, I think, in sugar and uh, multi-year highs in rice, both because of uh, production problems due to weather. You mentioned that you were getting back to a state of normalcy. How abnormal were things? Because they, they're probably abnormal in both directions, right? After the war, they probably got abnormal, and then the downswing from there was probably... So, like, where are we in that cycle? Sure. Well, as we've said, there's the golden grain cycle, and normal is is stage one. It's three stages. Normal is cost of production. So grains, major grains, corn, soybeans, wheat in particular, they're subsidized by every country in the world. No one wants to run out of food. So farmers are used to operating at the cost of production because... Um, demand is robust and growing all the time. You you have steady demand. So when there's a supply disruption, usually because of weather, once because of war in our lifetimes, we get a disruption. And when you have steady steady demand and, and interrupted supply, you get prices coming off that cost of production, sometimes quite dramatically like we saw in wheat. So we, we had the spike in all commodities due to both COVID and then the war in, in Ukraine. War in Ukraine um, really affected global wheat and major grain markets. And you're headed back down toward your cost of productions as the markets adjusted, the panic went away, and now supply is, is coming back on adequately. Is cost of production, and I know this is an investment advice, but generally speaking, is that when you want to be a buyer or like how, what's a broad framework for thinking about these things? Sure. So let's go back to the golden grain cycle and people can Google it. There's a, there's a good piece on that written by Jake Hanley, our analyst. And stage one is, is, is normalcy. So you're just trading flat line at cost of production and how you tell is futures go flat. Okay. Every farm's got a different cost, but the futures just go flat because that's delivery. That's the time to layer in your portfolio. I think we I've said this to you guys before. The, the expression advisors have used for us is they wait it, W-E-I-G-H-T. They wait, W-A-I-T, for a supply disruption. And then it's usually a drought. So it's wait, wait, drought out. So you layer in your portfolio, um, in particular the grains, in particular corn. There's great studies on corn um, when you're flatlined. And then you wait for, you know, statistically, 
four to seven years. Every four to seven years, there's a major dis supply disruption somewhere and you get prices spiking and that's when you get out. And so you layer in your portfolio, that's stage one at cost of production. Stage two is when something happens like a supply disruption, you go up. And stage three is when you're on your way back down and that's where we are now. Was there anything about this disruption this time around that surprised you? Did it follow the typical course of action? Because there was a lot of dire predictions after the war started about what could happen. And you kind of came on our show, I remember, right after it happened and said, well, listen, farmers are going to use every inch of their land when prices got And, and you, you kind of were more level-headed about it. But was there anything about this cycle for the past 18 months or so that has surprised you? Yeah, the, the duration of stage two. The duration of the height of the of the of the prices, the the fact that we remain this far over cost of production, in particular for corn, soybeans, and wheat, um, to me for this long, going into year three, basically, because remember it started with China, with China having a wheat problem and importing all that wheat three years ago now. So that's what kind of put the underpinning on prices of grains. And then you had the war and the panic. And then you know, like right now, there's plenty of grain. Russia's just flooding the world with grain. And in, in wheat in particular. And so you, you just had things stabilized. You don't run out of food. We say this all the time. It gets, uh, there's either enough or there's plenty. When there's only enough, prices go really high. When there's plenty, you're at cost of production. I saw a chart that really surprised me. This was from Deutsche Bank. And it shows US, and this is new to me, the US food stuff. I'm not making that up. U.S. food stuff price index in real terms. And it goes back to 1947. And of course, when you go back that long, right, like things can be a little bit distorted. But what it's essentially showing is in real terms, the the, the price of, of these things has gone down over time. And I think if you ask somebody in the 1940s, would food get more or less expensive? I don't know. Maybe I'm making this up, but I, I guess I maybe would have said it would get more expensive over time as as population just continues to grow. Uh, but it's done the opposite. And of course, there's been a million buying panics and, and interruptions over the years. But what are your general thoughts on on that? Well, we I think we talked about this last time we were together on this venue. And that is, um, you have pretty much no expected return from grains over time. So, because they always go back to their cost of production, that's what they do. And between government subsidies and technology, the you know the use of fertilizer, like synthetic fertilizer made out of natural gas, that's only what four decades old, five decades old. So you, you have these major sea changes in technology and growing techniques, and then the subsidies that allow grains to be produced um, adequately and and very efficiently. And so your, your expected real rate of return, like a buy and hold of gold or Bitcoin or something like that, it doesn't work with grains. With grains, there really is a cycle. You buy when they're flatlined because you have extremely limited downside historically because farmers will just stop producing. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty easy bet to say, if I'm buying at cost of production, something goes below its cost of production, no matter what commodity it is, it's not going to stay there very long because people will stop producing it. So you've got limited downside in those time periods. And again, with demand for exactly the points, Michael, you brought out, you would expect prices to go up because demand's always rising. Um, but efficiencies in production offset those prices. The fact that demand's always rising again, and the fact that you can't help but have supply disruptions, especially because of weather, um, means that grains will perform for you, but you just can't buy them and hold them on a 20-year expected return. It doesn't work that way. 
you sent us some some talking points ahead of time, and one of them I picked out was you're talking about the Russia-Ukraine war, which we talked to you right after that that happened, and talked about how people realize like how important wheat is for those regions. And you said that there's plenty of wheat for the world, no matter who wins the war. How is that possible? Because we heard all these we heard all these dire predictions about like there's 30 percent of wheat produced here, and it's where people are there's gonna be lines in the street for bread. Like what happened? They kept producing. So, you know, Ukraine's production did did go down, has gone down again. It will probably go down again. Um, but as the war um, settles out and it's going to be a long war and somebody's going to um, I don't think there's going to be a winner or a loser. I think I think Russia can claim a win here in the end if it's three years out or one year out. I don't know. But because Russia's upsetting the apple cart. But in the end, unless somebody uses a nuke, all that farmland is still there and people are still going to grow wheat. And it's like the, the issue Russia selling stolen wheat. Well, OK, it, but it's still wheat. All right. And is it stolen if it's a spoil of war? It's theirs now. Like there's all kinds of, you know, little nuances you could say. But the wheat is still there. It's going to grow, except where they're actually fighting or if they nuke it. OK, where you can't use the land for decades. Wheat's going to come off that land and it's going to be available to the world. You mentioned um, futures or prices flatlining. What do you what do you mean by that exactly? I just want to make sure that we understand. Sure. So if you look back on a corn continuation chart, a corn spot continuation futures chart, you can see it trading over the last fifteen years. It goes back down to about three fifty and doesn't go below there. I mean, it'll go below there for a month or two, but it just sits there between three dollars and fifty cents and four dollars a bushel for years. It'll go one, two, seven years was the longest stretch. But three times in those 15 years, it's going above seven. So three times in the last, if, if somebody said to you, look, I've got a, a commodity or any investment that it goes to a certain price and sits there for, for two to seven years, and then it doubles. And then it goes back to that price and sits there. And then it doubles. And it's done that three times in the last 15 years. You're going to say, heck, next time that happens, why, why don't you let me know? I'll throw a little something in there. And that's what, what advisors are doing. And again, this is not investment advice, but it's worth looking at what the golden grain cycle is. And when grains are at their cost of production, they are a terrific div portfolio diversifier because they, you know, people eat. If the stock market's going up or down, they still eat. The demand is still there. I like how you talk about these markets because you talk about them as in a cycle. And I feel like Every time commodity prices start to go up, someone has to say super cycle. I feel like commodities are the only places the rules, where you put super in. Commodities have way better branding than anyone because you got like the junior gold miners. Like, there's no, we don't call small cap stocks junior large cap stocks. Uh, <laughs> and we, you know, you have the super cycle. So everyone, right when prices go up, it's going to be a super cycle. But you're talking about it more as a cycle. So maybe it's too early to say, but like people were 18 months ago saying this is a super cycle. So what did they get wrong if we haven't gone into a super cycle? Because I, I don't know, a basket of commodities is probably down, what, 20% since the highs, depending on how you define that basket? Probably around that, maybe even more. I, You know, I think super cycle, and I, I don't know the technical definition of or the generally accepted definition is, but I think it has to do with like a decades long thing. Like if you're in a cycle that lasts 10 years or more. And so if, if commodities are in a sideways to bull market for more than 10 years, I think people assume that's a super cycle. And I think if they think t commodities have bottomed enough where they're going to be sideways to maybe higher for the next 10 years, they say we're entering a super cycle. I, you know what? Every commodity is different. We do have a whole lot of issues with a lot of different commodities. I mean, lithium is a great example. OK, 18 months ago, there wasn't going to be enough lithium like lithium's going to the moon. Well, no market straight lines. We're all experienced enough and not really experienced enough to understand markets don't straight line one direction or another. So when everybody's buying lithium, something might be wrong there. And all of a sudden, 
lithium prices crash. Now they're panicking that people aren't going to build the mines they need to build because they're not going to make a multi-year investment to have enough lithium. But then it comes out that sodium batteries, sodium ion batteries are better than lithium batteries. And you don't have to worry about the size if you're, if you're storing, say, from a wind farm or solar farm. So all of a sudden, the, the, the dialogue goes from there's not enough lithium, everybody needs a lithium battery, to now we got these sodium batteries that it, it's okay if they're big because all the, the wind farms and, and solar farms will use those. And they're cheaper to make and we don't have to mine lithium. And now everybody's happy again. And, and it's like, what happened to lithium? Well, lithium's not going away, but you just busted the lithium super cycle, if you will. So, you know, commodities, they go up and they go down and nothing gets produ- producers more, more excited and more efficient than high prices. So as soon as you get high prices in a commodity, your job is not to figure out if they're going down. They're going down. It's to figure out when. It sounds like a weird sort of market where there's structural inefficiencies. And I mentioned that the real co- the real price of these things has gone down over time, but there are plenty of monster spikes, big, big, big opportunities to make money. I was looking at the total assets of some of some of your funds, and sure enough, straight up, straight down, in a lot of cases, is that is that good behavior or bad behavior? In other words, I'm, as just eyeballing, it's impossible for me to tell exactly where the flows are coming from. But do ostensibly advisors are steering most of the flows in your products? Do you see them exhibiting good behavior? In other words, taking advantage of opportunities when they price line, or do you see more of a more of a chasing mentality, or maybe a little bit of both? I think it's a lot of both. I think as time goes by, more and more advisors are doing it the right way and they're accumulating when prices are down and waiting for that that price spike, as, as you said. And But bottom line, we're a headline-driven market. If you look at our flows, um, and okay, so mature products like oil ETFs, okay? If you look at when oil breaks below 40 or $50 a barrel, money pours into those ETFs. It's just astounding. And then it just sits there and waits because people understand that. They're just now understanding that about grains. And, and remember, the grain ETFs, you know, we're, we're basically the only ones that have these, these big grain ETFs. And they haven't been around that long, basically 12 years or so. And people are just getting used to, all right, same thing works for corn as works for oil. You know, if it gets down to its cost of production, I can park some money in there and wait. Okay. And there's no guarantee as to how long or or what the ultimate upside will be, but I, I get it. So we're seeing more and more advisors and money come in that way. But if you look at our flows when they're headlines like a war, okay, I mean our, our wheat fund, you know, as you know, we went above a billion two. The wheat fund went above eight hundred million in AUM, you know, in weeks after Russia invaded. Ukraine because of the panic. And then it, it dribbles out. And I don't know what it's at now. A couple How about your more tactical strategies? Because you have you have like the long, short strategies as well. Do people try to like time the, the tactical strategies as well? We don't we don't see that. They're new. So we basically see inflows there and they're they're still small. And we 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 did those for two reasons. One, there's an ag long short, and that's because when you're in the the, the stage three of the golden grain cycle and prices are going down, unless you're buying strictly for diversification purposes, you're not going to get the alpha. You know, it's pretty low probability you're going to get alpha, but people still want the grain exposure. So we, we put up a long short fund that has a very good track history of the index that it follows, the index track history. And so we, we feel that that's, that's a good alternative for people who want that exposure and want to get some absolute returns when grain markets are, are more likely to go sideways to down than, than sideways to up. And two, the, the metals markets, we see them as really big um, markets. It also was the best performing index we could find of our of our index provider. It just it just has an amazing uh, six year track history on that index. So we put that in a long short fund, 
And that's, again, you know, lithium was a great example. I don't think lithium's in our, in our base metals fund, but you just don't know what the, the headline and the prevailing psychology is going to be. So things are not always buy and hold, make money. You've got to, you've got to look for alpha. And the only way to do that is with a long short fund. I guess it's sort of like the VIX, like, you know, that you don't know where the floor is, but I don't know, whatever, 11, 12, you like, you know, eventually there will be a spike. You don't know what's going to cause it, but you know, it's coming. Exactly. And I'll, I'll point out that, you know, nothing's a guarantee. I mean, when we launched, we looked at the ag, ET, ET, our, our ag long short fund, OAIA is the ticker. And that thing in a six year track history, um, it had, I think, 14 down months in its six years. And you can look it up. The monthlies are on, on the website uh, of the index performance. And we ETF'd it. The darn thing went five months in a row down. Like, like no way you could see that. The, the second we ETF'd it, we're going to have t-shirts made. We ETF'd that, just tanked it. But, you know, it's come back. It's finding its way back. And over time, these things have a proven um, historical history and past, you know, results are not indicative of future performance, all that. But you have to put money to work intelligently. Whether it's going to work or not is always a question, but we, we think we've hit on some good things with these, these indexes. You, you focus mainly on like the base metals and the agricultural commodities, but you mentioned oil, and that's the one that most people think of when they think of commodities. I was looking today, so I think the price is, I don't know, $75, $76 a barrel. I think we first hit that in like 2006 maybe. And so is, is it the same dynamic there when prices went up to 150 before and then 120 this time around? Like, is, does the cycle work there just the same? Because I think most people, if you ask them, they would assume, well, oil prices go up over the long term, when really, for a long time, they haven't really gone anywhere. No, they haven't. And um, they they do go up quite often. But when they're down, that's when you layer in, just like you would do with grains. I, you know, I, I think oil, last time oil was above $100, and everybody was predicting whatever they were predicting, we were all talking on on one of your shows. And I said, I don't know why. But I think oil's going down. I can't tell you why, but I'm I'm four decades experience trading and oil's going down. Son of a gun, it went down. And then you know, OPEC made those cuts in July and oil went back up and got over 90, and everybody was talking hundred dollars and it didn't hit that. Okay. Now you can look at all the different reasons why. And there, we can get into that discussion, probably do a whole couple of shows on it. But suffice it to say, oil was supposed to go to hundred and it didn't. Okay. Oil's back in the 70s now. Oil's going to touch 50 before a lot it comes. Of, a lot of people said 200. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 50 before 100? 50 before 100. No, well, that's easy to say now if it's 70 something, right? Well, no, but, but right I mean, in the middle there, I, I'm sure most people would say 100 just because they have an upward. But I mean, there was a ton of $200 uh, predictions 18 months ago. Sure, but it, the commodities just don't work that way. They just don't. And oil, oil producers are responsive. And let's face it, OPEC, here's a, a common misnomer that everybody thinks. When OPEC cuts production, people think OPEC is trying to boost the price or keep the price high. OPEC looks at supply and demand balance. They do not look at the price. If they get the supply and demand balance right, the price will be what it will be and everybody can plan and the economy is stable and they can plan their state budgets. That's how it works. So when OPEC cuts, they are sniffing and they have brilliant economists, okay? They are sniffing oil demand declines. That usually means something bad is going to happen somewhere to the economy. When they held that cut in their last meeting, that was a real signal they see a recession company coming. Well, now oil, oil keeps going down. That last cut they held, everybody said, oh, we're going to 100 and it went to whatever, 91, 92. And it's done nothing but gone down since then. Even with Russian oil embargoed and off the market and all that, your oil is its natural progression is down. And OPEC now has a problem because the Saudis floated the cuts. 
and now nobody else wants to cut because they all need the money. OPEC's back in its old tit for tat. Who's going who's gonna to hold the line? It's leaving it up to the Saudis. The oil markets are going to be a mess the next six months, and I think, I think they're going down. Is this more of a – that's really interesting comments. Is this more of a structural thing within the oil market and less of a potential negative warning for demand for oil, which obviously you know, would indicate a recession? Is, is it less about that and more about other forces? Well, I think you have two things going on. Why OPEC's in trouble is because demand's going down because for some reason. Now, it's mostly China, okay? But China's not using the oil everybody thought they would. But there's still something happening in the global economy where we're not using as much oil. And granted, the U.S. has stepped up. And I think our production's up 15% in the last year. I mean, we're, we're rocking. We're back to the world's number one exporter, number one oil producer. We're, we're you know, we're, we're doing great. But oil has a, de- has a demand problem right now because there's plenty of supply and the OPEC members with their big budgets relying you know almost exclusively on oil money oil revenues there's going to be some problems there because people are going to produce or cheat um, beyond whatever they say that you know when whenever their next meeting is in a couple of days here Sal when when people think about investing in oil at least you know people that aren't using the futures contracts not the professionals there's ETFs that use futures contracts and sometimes they track the spot price better than others. And oftentimes they really, there could be a large divergence, which is a, a painful lesson that investors ultimately learn. Can you talk about how that works and why there might be a gap versus the underlying holdings of the ETFs that Tucrium uh, runs? Sure. And and so there are some ETFs that hold primarily front month futures or or the first couple front months. That's going to that's gonna track spot in the short term, but you've got to roll out of those futures contracts. And there's an inefficiency because you're not taking delivery. So you've got to sell the contracts you own and then buy new ones. And so if the market is in its natural state, which is called contango, um, I was taught in plain English, it's called the cost of carry. So if you buy a barrel of oil and stick it in storage for a month and it costs you, you know, whatever, 50 cents a barrel, the, the price of next month's barrel should be 50 cents higher then this month's barrel, that's a cost of carry contango. They both begin with a C, easy way to remember. It's the way I do it. But I don't know where the word contango even came from. They claim it came out of the finance world. I don't know. But the bottom line is if you're selling something at you know $70.50 and replacing it with $71, you're buying less and less oil. Okay. So in a sideways or bull market, that's probably going to hurt you because you own less oil as it goes up. In a down market, it's not going to hurt you. Okay, so that that remember is not always bad. It's just that in in an up market, you're not going to gain as much. And remember, if you buy a barrel of oil today, all right, and at the end of the year, people say, well, oil the oil ETF didn't track spot or whatever ETF it is didn't track whatever commodity. Well, if you bought the oil today and stored it for a year, that those are the economics of that. Okay, if the markets stay relatively the same, well supplied, and oil price or whatever commodity price stays the same. The, the cost of, of holding that oil for a year is it, the person who did that is going to lose money, okay? And so when you're comparing spot to spot, it doesn't work because the ETFs hold futures and futures build in that cost of storage. They're, they're built for people who are using futures as a tool. So they build all those costs in. So if you've got to continually roll, you're, you're, you're having this, 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 it's a roll cost, okay? They call it a roll cost. So if it's costing you 50 cents a month, you're, you're selling 70, 50, buying 71. You do that 12 times. You just lost six bucks a barrel. All right. People who expect the ETFs to track the spot exactly don't understand how these markets actually work. 
or anything. The reason gold ETFs track, number one, they hold physical, okay? Number two, if you had a futures one, the only difference is the cost of money. That's all it's going to cost you because gold, you know, it, it sits in this gigantic pile and, and it's really cheap to store because there's just a guy with a gun. Michael stores physical Bitcoin at his house. All right. Well, you know, the physical Bitcoin too. And Bitcoin's interesting. I mean, you know, right now, like I had in my gut this morning, because I really like Bitcoin, okay? And everybody thinks Bitcoin's going to the moon for all the obvious reasons. You've got the halving, you've got the the, the first of the year, you may get a spot Bitcoin funds approved. So there's going to be all this demand. So you're looking at it going, well, how can Bitcoin go down? But look at a chart, right? Bitcoin's trend from, from left to right is up, but it's got monster volatility and that's going to continue. So, Wait, so what do you like about Bitcoin? Is it the supply and demand dynamics? I'm curious, just as a commodity guy. Is supply that and demand. I mean, to me, um, Bitcoin, regardless of any, any esoteric stuff you want to get into, it's not a currency. It's a store of wealth, just like gold. It is the gold of, of crypto. And that's how it works. And as long as there's electricity and the internet, it'll work fine. Sal, I'm interested to hear you say that. Um, I guess it's like two years ago at this point, Bill Miller, who was a Bitcoin bull, put it very simply. He said the supply is expanding by, I don't know what the number was, 1% to 2% a year. Do you think the demand is increasing faster or slower than that? And I was like, you know what? Okay. That works. I mean, okay, so that's how my brain, I mean, I've told you guys before, that's why I'm in commodities. I'm not smart enough to be a stock trader. I'm not an economist, but like there's enough or there's not. If there's not, price goes up in commodities. If there's, there's enough, it's fine. You, you know, stay away from it or do something else with it. So I like your, your comment earlier about like with food, you said there's either like too much or just enough. Correct. Right. Like what would have to happen for that dynamic to shift where like, oh, okay, there's a shortage or whatever. Cause that, that's like the thing people worried about in the seventies or whatever, as the population's growing to is that just that technology outruns all of that and 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 it would have to be some sort of breakdown in society for that to that to hurt us? Yes. And the big breakdown that would hurt us is if people didn't replace one food with another. Like you can run out of rice, people shift to wheat. Okay? But if you run out of both rice and wheat, you're going to have a problem. So that that just hasn't happened because because humans are omnivores, we can eat a whole bunch of different things. And so when you run out of one thing or run low on one thing, it gets too expensive, they just use something else. And then of course the, the dynamics of commodity cycles come in where nobody's buying it, price goes down or nobody's using it, you know? So, so there's no demand, people stop producing it and then the price goes back up. The Malthusian guy, what century was that by the way? Heck, I don't know. We have to Google that. <laughs> is that like, but is that like modern times or is that like the 1200s? I don't, I don't know. Honestly, I don't, I don't remember. What do you think that gentleman got wrong. Like, what about his theory do you think was particularly, that he couldn't possibly have seen coming? Is it, is it technology? Is it, what is it exactly? Um, yeah, probably human ingenuity. Probably. Um, I, I mean, nobody can predict the technology. Nobody can predict any of that. But humans, humans are really, really intelligent. And, and we, we know how to manipulate and do stuff. And we're going to figure out a way to survive. Survival is everything. Malthus was like, Late 1700s. 1991? Late 1700s, early 1800s. <laughs> and I mean, okay. he, he was born like before the Industrial Revolution. So so I, I'll, I'll be willing to cut him some slack since he didn't see the technology that was about to be unleashed on the world or the, or the growth, I guess. Um, okay, so so you you all have a 2024 outlook coming. I, I'm sure like like you've, you've outlined the cycles pretty well here for how they typically work, but that still doesn't make it easy to predict the future. So like, how do you, how do you think about these outlooks in, in trying to, help position people for what, what's coming in these markets. All right. So Jake Hanley, who's really good at this, he's our analyst. And he he puts that outlook out. In the last couple of years, he's been uncannily accurate. And I, I talked with him this morning, said, you know, what can I say to Ben and Michael? And he said, well, 
Tell him it's coming out next month. It's coming out next month. <laughs> you know, he's working on, he'll do energy, he'll do currencies, he'll do obviously ags, he'll do metals, um, and just give a scenario. And what we try to do is step back and look at the, you know, near term what's happening. And then long term, what, you know, what are the trends that are going to affect everything? And, you know, high prices get rid of high prices. There's no way around that. Low prices get rid of low prices. There's no way around that. We, we look at, Commodity cycles, once they get started, they're hard to stop, okay? And grains are a little easier because generally it only takes one, maybe two years. This time it's been three. It's been unusual but to stop a grain rally, all right? Because farmers just plant, like like you said, Ben. We've talked about that before. Um, oil producers, you know, they can drill drill new wells and they can up their, their production a little bit. Same with natural gas. Metals are hard, all right? Metals take five to 10 years to permit and build a, a mine. Um, and so- Metals are 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 a big deal because you would think they'd be easier. You would say when prices are too low and nobody's building mines, it's pretty easy for you know Goldman Sachs is out there pounding the table. There's not going to be enough copper for for a very long time. So you think, all right, there's not going to be enough copper. I'm going to go long copper, and that may or may not work. The problem is when you put five or ten years into the mix, you don't know what change is going to happen. Like what technology is going to come out? What's going to shift so fundamentally? That you, you you just there's no way that you could have seen it coming, but there was plenty of time for it to come. So I think metals, the big mines, things that take ten years to build out, are really those are hard markets. Sal, last question for me: uh, Where does the U.S. dollar fit into all of this? Because that was a wrecking ball for really all assets in 2022. The U.S. dollar is really important. Obviously, a weaker dollar is basically going to have an effect on on stock market. Generally, goes up on a weaker dollar. Okay, but commodities. Um, are priced in dollars. Uh, many countries like it or not, commodities are priced in dollars. So a weaker dollar is is pre is a tailwind for commodities. It's very bullish for commodities, or at least a bullish tailwind, and that really helps. A strong dollar puts a cap on commodities prices. So when you when you got it, when you see the dollar roll over, that's a tailwind for commodities. That's good to be long commodities. It is. That makes sense. Yeah, and that's the same thing with like international stocks and emerging markets and a lot of these different things. And the dollar has been strong. I think a lot longer people thought. Sal, where do we send people to learn more about your your funds? Uh is is without a doubt the best place. We we do we're on Twitter, uh, or X, I guess it's called now, at two cream ETFs. Um, and just contact us. Go to our website. We're here to, to help and, and answer questions about any commodity, uh, even if we don't offer an ETF on it. We we try to help and point you in the right direction. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sal. Thank you guys. Okay, thanks to Sal yet again. Consummate Pro here, uh, tucrium.com to learn more about his funds and send us an email at Animal Spirits. Animal Spirits at compoundnews.com? Animal, Animal Spirits, Spirits at the Compound News. Animal Spirits at the Compound News.com. Okay, I always want to put pod in there, but all right, sorry. See you next time.